I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5. And I'm quite sure this morning that is the Gospel that we're uh, studying. For those of you that uh, weren't here last, uh, last Sunday in the second service, I announced the wrong book and uh, confused everyone totally for the first five minutes until Brian Fisher straightened me out. But uh, this is indeed a study in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. One of my favorite Idaho Mountain Ministries uh, stories, and one that I often repeat, is an incident that happened two or three uh, years ago. As you know, Idaho Mountain Ministries is an effort to help pastors in backcountry churches and in rural ministries, and we often bring teachers and pastors and leaders to them <clears throat> to uh, help them in their ministries, people they wouldn't otherwise get to hear. And uh, we were in a little uh, town up in northern Idaho, and a pastor from cul-de-sac Idaho uh, came to the meeting, and uh, he said to me, uh, we happened to have Dr. Howard Hendricks for that uh, particular session, and he was standing just in back of me, and and this young pastor came in the room and he said, which uh, Hendrix video is this? And uh, I said, this is not a video. This is the real thing. This is the real Howard Hendrix. And I'll never forget his response. He said, oh, no. He said, uh, Dr. Hendrix would never come up here and minister to the likes of us. And uh, that's what uh, hooked Howie. Ever since then, he said, I'll come back every other year to uh, Idaho to minister to your pastor's. But uh, what struck me is uh, that response, Howard Hendricks' response to uh, Idaho, is godlike. We we very uh, often think, I think, the same thing. God could not possibly be interested in the likes of us. We look at our lives in such total disarray, and we wonder why he would even care, why he would bother to come. But uh, the good news is that he did, even for us hopeless cases. And uh, the story that I'd like to read to you and comment on this morning is a vivid illustration of our Lord's willingness to travel through time and space and uh, to be with the likes of us. Let me, uh, let me read the first paragraph. They, uh, that is, Jesus and the apostles went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil or unclean spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him uh, anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the, and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with, with stones. Uh, you may recall from two weeks ago in the story of the uh, storm on the Sea of Galilee that our Lord and his disciples had launched from the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum and they had begun to row into the night across the uh, sea. And uh, that was the night that that terrible squall struck and and the boat almost sank. Our Lord uh, stilled the tempest and the disciples continued to row across the Sea of Galilee, either to the country of the Gerasenes 
or the Gadarenes, or the Gergesenes. The, uh, the texts read all three places, and it's almost impossible to know which Mark had in mind. Uh, there are a lot of uh, scholarly works on the uh, particular place where this, where this event uh, uh, occurred. After having read them all, I've, ca- I've come to the conclusion that it really makes absolutely no difference where this happened, at least not to us. It would to the disciples. If uh, they went to Gergesa, it was about a seven-mile row. If they went to the country of the Gerasenes, it was about a 13-mile row. So uh, it certainly would make a difference to them. But in any case, they continued on through the night at the Lord's direction. It was at his request that uh, they left Capernaum. And they pulled their little boat up on the shore on either the extreme southern end of the Sea of Galilee or over on the east uh, side. And it was there that they encountered this uh, uh, demon-possessed man. This was Gentile territory. This area was settled by people that uh, were the result of Alexander the Great's conquest. This was a very un-Jewish-like part of, of uh, Palestine. It would be uh, modern-day Jordan or Syria. There were ten cities known as the Decapolis there. Damascus was uh, one of them. These were large cities. This was uh, Greek territory. These were very sophisticated, highly educated uh, people. Uh, one of the most famous, a man named Theodorus, came from this area, who was the tutor of the, uh, of the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time this account uh, was written. Tiberius was his name. So uh, this was an entirely different part of, uh, of the world, very much unlike the rest of, uh, of Palestine. And it was here that this, uh, this maniac, this wild man, this, this crazy man, uh, lived. He is described here as uh, possessed by demons. Now, uh, Satan is described by the Apostle Paul as, a, as disguising himself as an angel of light. In other words, he doesn't always tell us the truth. It looks as though he is being truthful. It looks as though he is manifesting himself as he really is, but the facts are he is mostly in disguise. Uh, it's my observation from watching television and from reading contemporary books that, uh, that fictionalized sin always looks good. Uh, adultery, for example, is uh, depicted as something sometimes almost necessary in order to keep your marriage together or to add a little zest to your life. It it always looks uh, wholesome and healthy and fun, but in fact, real sin is is heartbreaking, heartrending. Conversely, uh, fictionalized good always looks boring and dull, where in fact fact it is uh, stimulating and exciting and zestful and the only way to live. But uh, Satan turns that upside down, usually. But sometimes he comes out of the closet. Sometimes he overplays his hand. He, he reveals himself for what he really is. And uh, whenever a person is demon-possessed, then you see Satan's naked intent. You see him for what he really is and what his ultimate purpose is in human life. Now, there are several ways to look at these manifestations of, uh, of demonic possession. 
we could simply look at it as marks of demon possession and the way to denote people who are who are demon possessed. But I I like to see it rather as a, a manifestation of what Satan would like to do to all of us if he could ever get us under his control. This is an illustration of what life is like under Satan's domination. This man lived in the tombs. Now, don't think of a graveyard. He lived in caves. That's where they buried people in those days. And uh, whichever location we pick for the story, there were a number of limestone caves. And uh, this man lived there because no one else wanted him around. The only people he felt comfortable with were dead people. They, They were the only people that would tolerate him. He was lonely and isolated and antisocial and separated from the rest of the human human race. Terribly lonely. He must have had a family. Jesus sent him back to his family later. But he was separated from them. And we need to understand that's exactly what Satan wants to do to you and me. He wants to separate us from one another. As Jesus put it, he who is with me gathers, he who is not with me scatters. Uh, Satan's efforts are always centrifugal. He always wants to drive us apart from one another. C.S. Lewis's description of of hell, you know, is uh, that of people living light years away from one another because they can't stand each other. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to separate us. He wants to isolate us. I can't do any marriage counseling anymore uh, for various reasons, uh, but uh, when I used to, it used to always strike me that uh, I'd have a couple in my room and the wife would be sitting over there and the husband would be sitting over here and they would be giving one another these laser-like looks that uh, that come out of deep hostility and anger. And, and I realized that once upon a time, these people loved each other, one another. You know, nobody gets married to make to be miserable for the rest of your life. You don't get married because you hate the person. You, there's something about them that, that attracts you to them. And, and there's love initially and great hope for that relationship. But... Uh, but after a while, they, you know, there can be hardness of heart and separation and distance and animosity and resentment and bitterness. And, and in, in fact, emotionally, they are light years away from one another. It's exactly what Satan wants to do. You see the same sort of thing happening between parents and, and children. The generation gap is more than a, a gap caused by a difference in generations. Uh, and you see, that's the sort of thing that our Lord wants to heal. He wants to bring people back together. It's striking to me that in the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 3, we're told that when John the Baptist came and it was to come and introduce the, the Savior, the hearts of fathers would be turned toward sons and sons toward fathers. What, what God wants to do is bring people back together. What Satan wants to do is to separate, isolate, bring terrible loneliness into our lives. The second thing it's said about this man is that he was possessed of an impure spirit, an unclean spirit, which explains for all the lewdness and the ugliness and the, the obsession with, with, with pornography and, and the, the dirt and the filth that's all around us in the world. It's why people want to be involved. And that's, you know, it's still, I, I, I'm getting to be an old fogey. It dawned on me the other day that I, I never thought I would get to be this way, but it, it, it still jars me when I see young women using four-letter, hear them using four-letter words and bathroom talk and whatnot. It just shakes me. And, uh, you know, and, and, and we all have these words pop into our minds, and sometimes they pop out of our mouths in a moment of anger and frustration, and we wonder, where in the world does that stuff come from? Well, James tells us, he says, that the tongue is set on fire of Gehenna, 
That's his word for hell. This ugliness, this filthiness within comes right out of the pit of hell. And uh, that's one explanation for the uncleanness in us and, and, and around us. The uh, third observation I would make about this man is that he was totally out of control. He lost control. Uh, I, you know, so many obsessive compulsive behaviors are inexplicable. And nobody has any explanation for some of the, uh, the, the eating disorders that uh, young women have. Why uh, are certain men uh, obsessed by, by pornography? Why are they controlled and dominated by, by alcohol or by drugs? Why do we abuse these substances? See? Where does all that come from? Well, there are various explanations for it, but ultimately... It's Satan who wants to get us out of control, to get us so obsessed that we are compelled to do things that we really don't want to do, self-destructive things. This man is described as dangerous in Matthew, so dangerous no one could pass by. And uh, his disease, uh, uh, which my wife described as legionnaire's disease, I thought that was pretty good, uh, his disease was progressive. Because at one point, uh, he could have been uh, chained. Mark makes the point that he was no, they were no longer able to control him. At one point, they could, but he, he, he got so powerful and so strong, they were unable any longer to restrain him. Which is, a, again, a vivid illustration of, of what happens to us when we begin to sin. Sin becomes our master, and after a while, we're totally out of control. And then finally, Mark describes him as self-destructive. He would gash himself with uh, flint rocks and sharp stones, and he wanted to destroy uh, his body. He wanted to destroy his, his life. Uh, several of my friends in the past five or six years have taken their lives, and uh, that's always such a terrible tragedy and, and unexplainable unless we understand again that Satan is a murderer. He wants to take human life, and he wants to put those self-destructive thoughts in our minds and he introduces them through music and through literature, and the thoughts just come into our mind. And we wonder where they come from. Well, this is the source of them. That does not mean we're demon-possessed if we have self-destructive thoughts, nor does it mean that we're demon-possessed if we have eating disorders. The point I'm trying to make is that when you see demon possession, you, you see Satan's intent. That's what he wants to do. He wants to blight and ruin and destroy, distort, make garbage out of human beings. And uh, that was the story of this man. Now, uh, as we read on into the account, we're told that in verse 6 that he saw Jesus from a distance. And he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of, the, uh, come out of this man, you, you filthy spirit. Um, it's interesting to, uh, to observe this man's response to Jesus. It was a, what struck me is it, it was the terrible ambivalence in this man. He rushes to Jesus, and yet he implores him not to interfere any longer with his life. Uh, he says, what... What business do you have with me, basically? Why are you meddling with my life? Why are you tampering 
uh, with me, and yet he can't stay away from him. He's both drawn to him and, and repelled uh, by our Lord. Incidentally, he knew who our Lord was. This may be one of the best authentications of the person of our Lord that you could ever ask for because the demons, uh, the demons had had dealings with Jesus before in the spiritual realm, and so they, they were well aware of who he was. They knew him by name. Sometimes if I have to pick someone up at the airport and I don't know what they look like, I'll take someone along who's seen them before. And when we get to the airport and, and the person comes up the uh, gangplank uh, runway and they'll, they'll say, well, it's that fellow there with the straw hat on. That's the one you're looking for. I've seen him before. And the best witness is, is an eyewitness, someone who's actually seen the person. And these demons knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew his name. The name, by the way, that he uses is a Gentile name, which makes me wonder if it wasn't the man himself who's speaking, instructed by the, by the demons. The most high God, El Elyon in, in Hebrew, is, is the word that the Gentiles use for God. It's used not only in the Bible, but in extra-biblical uh, material. And uh, this, this man, controlled by the demon, cries out, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, what business do you have? Uh, here with with me. And uh, wh- what you see is the same kind of ambivalence that I, I see in men and women all the time. Wanting Jesus and yet not wanting him. Longing for, for him, recognizing that there's something in our Lord Jesus that can meet the clamant need of, of their heart and yet at the same time not uh, not wanting him. The other thing that strikes me about this account is that the demons knew the score. In other words, they knew their time was up. Uh, they, they know the schedule of the future even better than, than the eschatological experts of today. When I was a child, I grew up in a church where every once in a while the pastor would bring out uh, one of these long charts. It was entitled The Plan of the Ages. Some of you may, seen it, may have seen them. And, there was a time for the Jew and then a time for the church and then the Lord is coming back and then the millennium afterward. And it was all laid out on this uh, long piece of white, white cloth. And I can remember being fascinated by that as a child, uh, getting a glimpse into the future and, and what, what would happen. We all want to know that sort of thing. Well, the demons know about the chart. They have their own charts. In my own mind, I envision a, a, a class with you know, young demons uh, being tutored and the older demon teaching the class. And he gets out his chart, plan of the ages, and he says, all right, you see that arrow right there coming down? That's when the Son of Man is coming. And it's over after that. So I want you to get out there and make as much mischief as you can. I want you to raise as much cane as you can between now and, and that point because when the Son of Man comes, it's over. So I want you to go out there and break up marriages and, and I want you to, to pick on people that are having significant ministries and I want you to isolate people from one another and I want you to cause them to dislike each other and gossip about one another and so forth. And I, you just create as much trouble as you can because we don't have much time. You better do it now because the time is coming when, when it's over. We're going to be locked up. Matthew even says, uh, Matthew adds some 
features that, that Mark omits, Matthew says that the demon actually said, have you come to torment us before the time? In other words, he checked his chart. And you know, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. It, it isn't time yet. You're out of phase. But uh, as Luther puts it, he knew his doom was sure. One little word would fell him. He knew that the, the jig was almost up. His time was almost over. And, uh, and so he, 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 was, he was questioning uh, our Lord. Is this, is this it? Is this the time? And he was begging our Lord not to drive him out of the man. So, uh, verse 9, Jesus said to him, what, what's your name? And the man said, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. He knew Jesus' name. Jesus asked his name, which is the sort of thing we often do because uh, our name is the most precious thing in the world to us. We, we love it when people know our name, when they remember it, and when they... They use it because it, it says something about our significance and worth as a, as a person. And our Lord is trying, I think, to draw this man out to, to get him to recognize who he really was. And apparently, he recognized immediately the problem because he said, my name is Legion. Now, Legion just means a lot to us, but in those days, a Legion represented 6,000 Roman soldiers. That's a lot of demons. And I get the picture of this a sort of a, a conglomeration of evil personalities in this man, interacting and exacerbating one another's wickedness and encouraging one another and, and just creating a, a frightful amount of distress in this, uh, in this man. And uh, I think our Lord wanted to draw that out of him, help him to recognize that he was, that he was controlled and, and dominated by these personalities. Uh, multiple personalities are often the mark of demon possession. And not always. There may be other explanations. But very often, if there are, there's evidence of several personalities in a human being, it's an indication of, of the possession by satanic personalities. A number of years ago, an usher uh, came to me here after the morning service, and he said, I think there's someone here that, that you ought to meet. And uh, I went out to the foyer, and, and uh, here was a, a young man in his late 20s. And I was introduced to him, and I said, hello, my, my name is David Roper. And he said, uh, we are Smith. I, I said, come again. Uh, he said, we are Smith. And I see some of you smiling because you remember the man. Uh, there was uh, clear evidence of two very evil personalities in that man. One who masqueraded uh, as a man and another that masqueraded as a woman. And uh, that may be one of those rare incidents here of someone who was demon-possessed because there were these two very malevolent, malicious personalities in this, in this person. We had a number of encounters with him uh, over the months, uh, months ahead. Now, that's, that's what you see in this man. Multiple personalities. Demonic, uh, uh, multiple demonic presence in this, uh, in this individual. And uh, the demons were begging him not to send them out of, out of that region, out of that area. Which leads me to believe that, uh, 
that's what demons can expect whenever Jesus and the good news come into an area. I think one of the reasons that uh, there's little evidence of demon possession in the United States or has been over the last hundred years or so is because of the free and open proclamation of the gospel here. I've mentioned before Brian Fisher's illustration of of the gospel coming into an area like uh, explorers coming into a jungle and clearing out a patch in the midst of the jungle. And, uh, but after a while, the jungle begins to encroach, and I think that's what happens. This was an area that was given over to Greek philosophy and Greek thinking. They worshipped Greek gods. There was apparently a lot of demon possession there. The demons were free to, uh, to uh, influence and to dominate and to possess people in this way. And the first thing that happened when Jesus came into that region was that the demons began to fear for their very existence because they knew that his presence would dispel them. And so they began to beg him not to uh, cast them out of, out of that area or send them from that area. And uh, there were, Mark tells us there was a large herd of pigs feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Uh, I used to raise pigs and uh, <clears throat> often thought that uh, this is only suitable. Uh, there, there's something particularly obnoxious about uh, pigs. Pigs, ducks, chickens, and goats are the filthiest animals on the face of the earth. Uh, George MacDonald says that uh, God created pigs as a symbol of uncleanness. Uh, he may have something there. I, I feel for Dave Melhoff, who has to kiss a pig uh, shortly. I understand there's a contest going on, and uh, he's facing that awful prospect. Uh, there are a number of these, uh, these pigs on the, on the side of the hill, and Jesus permitted the demons to go out of the man, perhaps because the, the, the demons feared disembodiment. Uh, they wanted to go into some other carcass, and so God, our Lord permitted them to go into the pigs. Uh, the pigs were grossed out. They couldn't stand the demons either, and they ran down the, the hill into the sea like uh, lemmings and perished. I do not know what happened to the demons. They may have had to go on to the abyss uh, from there, and we're eternally chained. We're simply not told. All we're told was the effect of this exorcism, which must have uh, had a dramatic impact upon the man. It certainly had a dramatic impact upon the swineherds. It was a very graphic illustration of the fact that the demons had actually come out of the man and had taken up residence in these in these pigs. Some of you know Dick Hillis. Uh, he's a good friend of ours here and. Dick was one of the founders of Overseas Crusades, and uh, he's a very sane, reasonable, rational uh, man. He uh, uh, spent much of his life in China and Honan province, way back in the interior of China as a missionary. And uh, he tells a story of an encounter he had with a medicine man uh, in, uh, uh, in one of those villages who was demon-possessed. And... Uh, uh, Dick exorcised a demon from this man, and there happened to be an unlucky dog that was in the house, and the demon went into the dog, and the dog began to run around the village until it exhausted itself and died. And Dick said that the, the net result of that 
of that event was that the village, they saw uh, before their own eyes the, the exorcism. They realized that something had happened. And I think this was the effect of, uh, of this particular uh, uh, cleansing. These demons went into the, into the pigs, and everyone around saw what had happened. They also saw the large number of demons that were, that were possessing uh, this man. They were told in verse 14 that those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then, and that's the significant word in this paragraph, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their, uh, their region. The, uh, the swine herds uh, went off to the nearest town to announce this exorcism. In the meantime, our Lord uh, seated the man from whom the demons had been expelled, and he began to teach him, I believe. He began to talk to him about what it meant to follow him. The other disciples must have contributed some of their clothing because the man had been naked up to this point. When the town's uh, folks arrived, he was clothed, he was seated, he was sane, he was no longer restless, he didn't have to be restrained, he was whole, he was ready to turn, return to society, go back to his uh, family and, and friends. And they were amazed but they didn't want Jesus around any longer. Because they had invested heavily in pork bellies, and their pork bellies were floating belly up. You see, again, these are a bunch of people who knew the price of commodities, but did not know the value of a human life. Their heart was in their pigs. They loved their swine. And uh, Jesus' presence in that, uh, in that region was up upsetting the economy. For them, the bottom line was, was the dollar. And they wanted him out. And I wonder about that. I, I, I wonder how often that's true of the way we look at at things, I think of those of us, uh, you know, we men have a penchant for working long hours, 14, 16, 18 hours in order to be successful or to make more money. And we invest our lives in making money because that's where our heart is. As Jesus put it, where your heart is, that's what you treasure. That's where you invest your time. Then you come home in the evening and you're just too tired wiped out, no time to invest in the human beings in your, in your home. No time to spend with your wife, no time to spend with your kids because you're just utterly wasted. You've, we've invested our whole life in making money. See, we know the value of money, but we don't know the worth of a human being, the value of a human being. See, the world turns everything upside down, distorts everything. That's why we, we save whales and baby seals and we kill little children, unborn children. We don't understand and uh, we will invest our lives in a home and 
you know, spend uh, all day cleaning it up, and the kids come in and mess it up, and we scream and yell and climb all over the kids, and and our, what, because what we're thinking is that homes are to look at, homes are to clean, not house little people. We used to have a dichondra lawn when I lived in California. Those of you that come from that area know what dichondra is like. It was beautiful until our kids grew up. And they started playing Little League Baseball. And then I had to make a choice. I was either going to grow dichondra or I was going to grow kids. You can't grow both. And those are the choices we have to make over and over again. I struggle with it too. Uh, uh, Tony Campola tells a, a story about a bunch of kids that broke into a, to a, a store one, one time. And just pranksters and they switched all the price tags and the next morning, people flooded in the door, and here was a shirt that had sold for $20 the day before, and it had a $39.95 tag on it, and people would snatch it up thinking, my, this is a wonderful shirt. And, and he makes the point that this is what we've done in our world. We've put the wrong price tag on things, and we invest ourselves in money and things, sticks and stones and brick and mortar, and, and we forget that people are God's most important product, haven't invested in the right things. John Oxenham has a, a poem that puts it in, in perspective. It's a poem about this particular event. Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men. We swine. Oh, get thee gone, O holy one, and take these fools of thine. Their souls, what care we for their souls, since we have lost our swine? Then Christ went sadly. He had wrought for them a sign of love and tenderness divine. But they wanted swine. Christ stands without your door and gently knocks. But if your gold or swine the entrance blocks, he forces no man's hold. He will depart and leave you to the treasures of your heart. There's a final word uh, here in the last paragraph, 18 through 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demonized begged to go with him. Who wouldn't want to go with him? Jesus didn't let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. It's the unlikeliest witness I can imagine, but the most powerful witness that you would ever hear. Here's a man who could go back to his hometown and say, you remember what I was like? You remember what I used to be like? The, the anger and the bitterness and the hatred and the malice with which I... Uh, I interacted with my friends and, and family and my uncontrollable nature, the terrible things that I did to people, and all of that's, that's changed. That's the most powerful witness in the world. It's the kind of witness we ought to give. Let's tell our own story. Don't tell anybody else's story. Let's don't give any spurious witness. Just tell people what happened to you, like, like the blind man. You, see, you, know, you don't really believe that Jesus can do that. Well, all I know is that I used to be blind, now I can see. 
I, I like John White's metaphor of a signpost. He said we're like signposts. We just point people to Jesus. Signpost doesn't have to look like much. It can be ugly as sin as long as it's legible. Got to read it clearly. So let's don't talk about our church, for goodness sake. Let's don't talk about our pastors. Let's talk about Jesus and tell people what happened to us. You know my story. I, I tell it ad nauseum about the woman who was in a debate with a young, young philosopher about whether or not Jesus could turn water into wine. And, and she said, well, I don't know about that. She said, all I know is that when my John became a Christian, Jesus turned beer into groceries. It's that kind of witness that impacts people so powerfully. Just tell your story. Just tell your story. Whenever I teach our interns, I always use this as an illustration of the way to reach an area. You know, our Lord didn't even intend to go over to the other side of the sea to evangelize. He was tired. He wanted to get away from everything. But he was always available. He was always available. So he gets to the other side. The father had this divine appointment set up. You know, if you were going to evangelize the Decapolis, or if I was going to, I would probably uh, look for some uh, professor in the local university or mayor of one of the towns. The father had this appointment set up for Jesus and this desperately sick man. And our Lord dealt with him, healed him of his demon possession, and then sent him back. And this man turned the whole region upside down. He not only evangelized his home, which, by the way, is where we start. We go right back home. That's the hardest place in the world to live it. But that's where it's got to be lived if we have any credibility at all. If we're authentically Christian, it's going to show up in our home, the way we treat our wives and our children and, 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 and our neighbors. But this man not only witnessed to his own home, he evangelized in the sense that he proclaimed the good news. And, and by the way, that, the word that's used is he went out preaching. He was a carux of the king. He, he made announcement of the gospel in ten cities. He went throughout the Decapolis all the way to Damascus and told people what had happened to him. And uh, church historians tell us later that when early Christians went into this region, the area of Jordan in, in, in modern-day Syria, they found people's hearts prepared for the gospel. And there was a great upsurge of response to the gospel there in that area. Why? Because this man had laid the groundwork. Would you pick him? And our Lord just went wherever he went, counting on the Father, entrusting himself to the, to the one who, who, who could strategize properly and, and, and use people powerfully and, and he just gave, gave a word wherever he could, touched lives. And then he sent this man back to tell his story. And he turned that whole region upside down. Good lesson for us to just, just be available. But there's one thing more I want to say about this passage before we set, gather around the Lord's table. This man was a hopeless case. And maybe you, you feel that way this morning. Maybe you have obsessions, compulsions, habits that you have not been able to rid yourself. You, uh, your life may be in shreds this morning. And you're feeling utterly beyond hope. The demons of greed and malice, hatred, resentment, bitterness have, have got you in their grip. 
you're under control, under the control of the evil one. I want you to understand that that our Lord Jesus came to set you free. Uh, Peter, in his uh, little talk with Cornelius in his house, put it this way. This is the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good, and healing everyone who is under the power of the devil. That's what our Lord wants to do. He wants to heal all of us who are under the power of the devil. And he did it by going to the cross, by paying the price for our sins. The Father raised him as an authentication, verification of the fact that that the cross did what the cross was intended to do. And thus coming to Christ. Today we receive forgiveness for our sin and we receive the power to be new kind of people. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Now that's what he offers to you. It's what he offers to me. No one is hopeless. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that that constant reminder that uh, And when we come to you, you will not reject us, even the worst of us. You do not expect us to begin to reform our character or try to act differently. We see so vividly this man who really could bring nothing to Jesus except himself. He had nothing to offer. Everything about his life was wrong. And... uh, you took him just as he was. You saw beyond the, even the opposition, and you saw the condition of his heart. And you redeemed him. You reclaimed him. Lord, we thank you for doing that for us. We look back on our lives and see how you've begun to change our lives, how you've begun to give us control over the habits that have dominated us, and you're beginning to set us free from the sins that, that have oppressed us and obsessed us in the past. Thank you. Thank you for that. And now as we gather around this table, we pray that our hearts again would uh, be awakened to the love that drove you to the cross. We, like this man, may often ask why you think it's your business to tamper in in our lives. And, And then we realize again that we are your business. And you cannot leave us alone. And you will not leave us alone until we yield our hearts to you. Help us to reflect upon that love as we share this table. We ask in Jesus' name.